Hello and welcome to the Flaming Grenade Serial Podcast, where you can listen to the story of the Flaming Grenade in commute-sized podcasts. If you need to catch up, you want to read along, or you just want to just can't wait and you want to read ahead, the full ebook is available on Amazon, so please consider supporting the author by purchasing the ebook. This reading is done by the author without any mixing or multiple takes. Um, kind of an audiobook meets story time, so I hope you enjoy it. And now the next episode of The Flaming Grenade. Chapter 39, Half Moon Bay, California. I looked over at Zara and grinned. We were closer to the office than the apartment, so I turned right at the next intersection towards the office. We were on our way to dinner, a seafood place down by the pier, when the call came. There was no way I would be able to have a nice, relaxing dinner knowing that email was sitting in my inbox. My heart was racing in anticipation, hoping we would find answers in the document. I thought, just for a moment, how in the world Robert Source must have come by the information, and then decided I didn't really want to know. Who cares how? I was more interested in what the document said, if it had any answers. I parked right up near the front door and left the truck running as I ran into the office to print out the document. Zyra stayed in the car, knowing I would need her help translating the document anyway. There was no way I was going to preview the file without her, because, quite simply, I wouldn't be able to. I ran down the hallway, passing Paul, who was leaning back in his desk chair, feet on the desk, tossing balled-up paper into the trash. That was how he concentrated. He went through more reams of paper as basketballs than I did for actual work. But it worked for him, so who am I to judge? He didn't even notice me pass his office door, or at least he did not react or respond in any way. I got to my office shook the mouse to give mouse to give the screensaver email program already open contained Robert's email in bold text. I opened the email attachment and hit print, not really realizing at first that it was twenty five pages long. I guess I was starting to catch up with Paul's paper use. The printer was networked, located down the hallway. I went to the printer room to ensure there was paper and enough toner and watched transfixed as the printer began to spit out pages. From a shelf in the room I grabbed a clip and a file folder and waited for the completed product. The machine hummed, and I smelled the clean scent of warm paper and fresh ink. Finished, I quickly walked back down the hallway and out to the truck. Here it is, I said, handing the folder to Zyra. It looks like an official document of some kind. Zyra opened the folder, and I put the truck into drive. We could go through the file at the restaurant. My stomach rumbled, and Zyra looked over, chuckling. We better get some food into that belly right away, she laughed. No kidding, my stomach is starting to feed on itself. At the restaurant, we were seated right away. We were a little early for the dinner rush, and getting a table with an ocean view wasn't a problem. The room was dimly lit with decorative lamps at each table, and two linen tablecloths covered the table. We sat next to each other on the same side of the table. Sarah reached up under the table lamp and turned the knob to brighten the light. The customer across from us looked over and scowled at the brighter light. I just smiled and shrugged. The document was in Italian, and the color scan showed it was old, yellowed, and cracked around the edges. A stamped red segreto filled the top margin of each page. The title indicated the document had been prepared by the commanding general of the Arma di Carabinieri, his seal was located at the beginning of the document. Zyra began to slowly make her way through the document. She didn't know every word and struggled through the passive language of bureaucracy found in any government document. I grabbed a small notebook from her purse and began to write whatever she said so it would be easier to read, read it quickly once she was done. We're going to have to get this translated by an expert. I don't know if I can catch all the nuances, and I don't want to miss something important. That's fine, I said. I replied, I'm sure Robert knows someone at Stanford who can help, but what can you tell? Zyra explained that the document appeared to be a report written by a Carabinieri officer, a special unit commander to the commanding general. The document started by recapping the history behind orders or instructions the special unit received. Look here, Zyra pointed 
to a paragraph about a third of the way down the page. It talks about 13 stones, pietre di potente, that make up the pietre omnipotente. No, wait, half of the pietra omnipotente. What in the world? Okay, so here it mentions Mount Etna in 1669, saying it erupted because a shepherd found the all-powerful stone in a cave and stole half of it from the gods. A uh, magical stone and gods? What the... Listen, Cyrus said impatiently. When he discovered it was the stone that caused the eruption, he broke it in fear. When the stone broke, it fell apart into exactly 13 pieces. Uh, so what does this have to do with the badges, I said. Skimming further down the page, Cyrus explained the shepherd took the stones to the local priest to be destroyed, thinking they were possessed by a demon. The priest, sensing there was more to the story, took the stones and sent the shepherd, who was very relieved, on his way. The stones were kept by the local priest, and he brought in nuns from the local convent to help. Then the carabinieri took custody when a corrupt priest tried to put the pieces together again to use their power. The stones were melted down and molded into the carabinieri flaming grenade, where they were protected by a specialized unit, all of whom swore sacred vows of silence. So that's what I can get from the backstory without a dictionary and a lot more time. Let's see what the actual orders were. That should be next, I think. A waitress arrived with our drinks, and we took a moment to order dinner. The fish of the day for me and crab cakes for Zyra. All right. Cyrus Finger traced the lines of text to the bottom, and she turned to the next page. During World War II, the Germans and Italians were allies, but it was the beginning of their break. The Americans and British had just driven the Germans from North Africa. Now it talks about a German SS officer who was working in Sicily, torturing parish priests. Word was that he was asking questions about the Tredice... Pietre and the Pietro Omnipotente. The Italian Carabinieri hierarchy became worried that eventually the Germans would find an old priest or nun who remembered the stories and who was too weak to withstand the Germans' questioning. So it looks like the decision was made to return the 13 badges to the cave in the mountain to join them with their brother stone, reuniting the power in its rightful place. They could not take the risk that Hitler would get his hands on the power. That would have changed the course of history. Wow, that's crazy. Magic stones, Nazi SS torture, secret packs? It's like some high adventure movie or something. I put a bite of fish in my mouth. Now here in the orders, it says all 13 needed to be included for it to work. It explains that three together could produce enough power to wreak havoc by an individual, but true power was only obtained by combining the entire stone together. The half taken by the shepherd was uncontrollable to them, which explains the major earthquake. Sarah took another bite of her crab cakes. They were delicious as always, and she realized she had allowed them to get cold. And here is a list of the 13 officers assigned to the mission to return the stones or badges to Mount Etna. Look, she said, pointing. There he is, Grandma's brother Giancarlo. So he was on a secret mission, a real hero. He died to save the world. There's a handwritten note at the end of the report. It's hard to make out, but it says something failed, something all dead, then something three left, something lost, something one final known. That's all I can make out. Something was an almighty popular word, I guess. That earned me a punch in the shoulder. Sounds to me like we're heading to Palo Alto after dinner to see if Robert can tell us more about the Pietro Omnipotente. Maybe he knows one of the Italian professors who can help us out. Sounds good to me, Sarah agreed. We finished our meal discussing our wedding plans and the things we were able to accomplish that day. We were on track for the new wedding date, which made Zyra very happy. It was crazy to think we were getting married in three days. There was so much going on. I hadn't really stopped to think that it was happening so quickly. Don't get me wrong, I was extremely happy and excited. It was just a big deal. I was ready and all for it. I just hadn't planned to psych myself up until next week. 
The upgraded timetable skipped that step. Tomorrow was going to be a busy day. I needed to pack my apartment up and also go through the master bedroom at Zara's place. It didn't seem like much, but I knew that packing always takes longer than you expect. It was going to be a long night followed by a long day. I could live with that. Next week was our honeymoon. We can make up our sleep then. Famous last words, I know. Chapter 40, Palo Alto, California. We took my truck over the mountain to Palo Alto in record time. Part of, it, part of that was probably because there wasn't as much traffic on the road at that hour. There were folks who commuted over the mountain, but they were all home by now. Sarah kept an eye out for cops, and we pulled into Robert's driveway before 9.30. I knocked on the door. In our excitement, we forgot to call Robert to let him know we were coming, but he didn't have a life anyway. A woman opened the door wearing a business shirt and pajama bottoms. She looked expectantly at us and frowned. You're not from Wan's Chinese palace, she stated in a matter-of-fact tone. After a pause, Zyra replied, No, we certainly aren't. We are here to see Robert. I'm sure Zyra was a bit peeved that I hadn't spoken up a bit sooner, but I didn't know what to say. I hadn't expected a woman to answer. The woman rolled her eyes and stepped back, allowing us to enter. Robert, there are some people here to see you. She turned her head and yelled up the stairs. Robert appeared at the head of the stairway in the slacks he was wearing earlier in a tank top. Ash, you're in your PJs, Robert reminded her nonchalantly. The woman, Ashley, I was assuming Ash was short for Ashley, trotted up the stairs. So, what did it say? Robert was completely focused now on the issue. It's crazy, man, but we need a true Ita Italian speaker, I said. Ashlyn doesn't ha Ashley doesn't happen to be majoring in Italians, I asked. Robert was nonplussed. Actually, she is an Italian professor, thank you very much. He wasn't offended. In fact, he, came he seemed quite pleased with himself. What a coincidence, I replied. Ashley came down the stairs, and now she had on she had a black pencil skirt on. Ashley, let me introduce my friends, Archie and Zyra. We both shook her hand, and she looked at Zyra. Zyra, no, you don't hear that Italian name very often. It's very pretty. From the Lazio or Campania regions, no? See, si, I mean, yes, it was my grandmother's name, and thank you. Zyra was warming up to her a bit, I thought. Come, let's go to my office. Robert led us down the hall to what most people would have called their family room. Robert, however, had made it a gigantic office-slash-library. His desk stood against the far wall in front of a standing screen that tried unsuccessfully to hide the sliding glass door. The walls were full of bookcases, no room for pictures, paintings, or anything else. The shelves were a mix of hardwood cabinets and plywood on cinder blocks. It looked like Robert collected whatever he found that would make a shelf and used it. On his desk sat a computer. The room was a mess, a jumble of papers on the floor and stacks of books on the two club chairs situated near a fireplace. I noticed under a particularly large stack was what appeared to be a, a chaise lounge. He switched on a floor lamp in each corner and busily began to move stacks from the chairs to the floor. I jumped in and there were three cleared seats in no time. Robert pulled his desk chair out from around the desk and sat it down in the middle of the room. Ashley sat on the chaise modestly sitting with her ankles crossed and knees to the side. So, talk to me, Robert said excitedly. I handed him the report and asked him to make some copies, one for each of us. I then told Ashley that w what we were going to discuss was huge, unbelievably huge, but she could not tell anyone. She looked suspicious. Sarah joined in, and finally, I think more out of curiosity than anything else, she swore herself to secrecy. Robert returned with the copies, and we began to pour over the document. Sarah took notes on her copy as fast as she could write. Ashley was able to fill in some blanks and connect the pieces of the story, but basically Zyra had it right. One detail added to the story was that there was a way to control the stones. 
a secret no human, at least in recorded history, had ever been able to figure out. The power of the stone, when awakened, acted of its own accord, and thus a ceremony was completed, or the power was properly wielded, opined the author. That is all the information the report had, and I sense that was all that the author knew. It did explain the great earthquakes when the shepherd took the half of the stone to his house. It also reiterated the danger to mankind the stone represented, especially if it got into the wrong hands. I asked Robert if he knew anything more about the Pietro Omnipotente. He didn't answer, but stood up and started scanning books on his shelf, one finger tracing the spines as he went. I worried this could take all night, what with how many books were in his office. They didn't look to be in any particular order to me, but I'm sure they were organized in Robert's brain. Aha, uh, he announced as he gently pulled an old book from the shelf. I carried it back to his chair and sat down. This book doesn't mention the Pietro Omnipotente per se, but if I remember correctly, it traces man's quest for power to control the earth. You see, Robert was in his element now lecturing. Every civilization has fought to control the world around them, the sun, the rain, the weather, and their enemies. For most, it defined their religion, their definition of God. When they found they could not control something directly, they ascribed the power to a greater being, and then implored the being to act on their behalf. The Greeks and Romans have the most well-known structure because they named and ascribed characteristics to all of their gods, one over each element. Even we do it today. We think that we can use technology and science to change the elements. Just look at the fight against global warming. We all cupped our hands over her mouse and in shock at his academic blasphemy calling it so-called. We think that by driving hybrid cars and using clean energy, we can control the shifts in the Earth's temperature and climate. The Earth has been undergoing radical climate shifts and cycle for millions of years. Technology has become our god, and I am guilty as well. We all worship it. So what does that have to do with the stone and its power? Well, if the document he pointed to the report is correct, the Pietro Omnipotente is an actual physical object that holds the power all of these civilizations have searched for throughout history. The great pyramids in Egypt and in the Americas, the Parthenon, Stonehenge, all of them were worthless. All of the power they saw resides in one stone. One stone and the ceremony or whatever, I corrected. Robert continued, There have only been a handful of times recorded throughout history where man was able to control the elements, to actually harness the power. When Moses parted the Red Sea and when Jesus calmed the raging seas and walked on water, so they had the stone? Possibly, but more than likely, the power resided in some other form then. Ashley had sat through our entire conversation dumbfounded. She couldn't decide whether to believe us and join in the excitement or to reserve three spots in a rubber room. Robert's excitement, however, was infectious, and soon she decided to have a little faith and believe we were not all crazy. We talked well into the night trying to wrap our heads around the possibilities, the meaning of this discovery. When Zyra and I finally left, not long before the paper boys would start their rounds, it was decided Robert and Ashley would do more research into the story, see if they could find anything related to the Pietro Omnipotente, the power or the special ceremony. The more we had, the better off we would be. Chapter 41, Naples, Italy John Posong arrived in Naples just before lunch. He just finished reorganizing a small branch of one of Chong's businesses in Amsterdam. The business was in need of some new leadership with a new attitude. Sung was the guy that took care of such problems, and the new management he knew would not make the same mistakes after what they had seen. He took the morning flight, and after a short layover in Munich, arrived in the small Naples airport. Sung always traveled light and bypassed the line of people waiting for their luggage. 
Outside the baggage area, a noisy crowd pushed and shoved to get a peek inside, hoping to catch the first glimpse of their arriving guest or family member. Sung looked around and saw a dark, wiry man holding a sign for Yongri Enterprises. The man was tapping his foot, and Sung decided the man needed a cigarette. That was no good. Of all the crooks in Naples, they sent him one with an uncontrollable nicotine habit. Sung appeared to be a healthy man with broad shoulders, but he wore his suits loose to hide his physique. Underneath he was huge, a locomotive, cut like marble, not an ounce of fat on his body. Sung took his health seriously and disdained people who were trapped into addiction by alcohol or nicotine. Any addiction was a weakness, and weaknesses could be exploited by one's enemies. Sung approached the wiry man and grunted at the sign. Without a word, the man acknowledged Sung and turned to walk to the car. After they arrived at the car, the little Italian introduced himself as Luigi. Sung nodded, then asked Luigi where they were going to get weapons. Sung's preferred weapon was a simple garrote. He always traveled with one hidden in his belt. Airport security saw nothing in their scans and x-rays, but the garrote did not invoke fear. It was a weapon of silence and surprise, and, only, and one only slightly more effective than his massive hands. To get the result Sung most often desires, he needed something a bit more showy, a bit more impressive. We go, no worry, Luigi said, getting into the car. The car reeked of smoke, and Sung kept the window down as they drove from the Capodichino airport onto the Tangenziale. Sung gripped his armrest as Luigi whipped in and out of traffic. Sung thought driving in China was bad, but decided driving in Naples was insane. Luigi drove out of the city into the country where fields were surrounded by clusters of cement block apartment buildings, mostly unfinished. They pulled off the freeway and drove through a small street to a garage, little European cars up on blocks and mechanics covered in oil and grease. No one paid any attention to the two men as they passed through the garage into the back room. A huge man sat behind a desk, his chair all but invisible under his layers of fat. He was eating a steaming mound of pasta, marinara sauce dripping from his chin. Sung scowled in disgust. The fat man motioned with his eyes to a door behind him, and Luigi led the way. The door closed, and Sung looked around the back room, his eyes slowly adjusting to the dim light. There were no people in the room, only shelves of weapons and ammunition. It was extremely unorganized, guns tossed haphazardly in plastic bins. These people are a piece of work, Sung thought to himself. He started rummaging through the piles until he found what he was looking for. Two 9mm semi-automatics with eight magazines and a dual shoulder holster. Luigi pointed to a shelf housing ammunition, and Sung grabbed a few boxes and started to fill his magazines. When they were full, he swept debris from a table under a light and began to strip the weapons. Sung grabbed a rag and wiped down each weapon, inspecting each part to his satisfaction. He reassembled the weapons and worked the action. Sung seated a magazine into each weapon and racked the slides, putting a round into the chambers. He picked up one weapon in each hand, turned to the door, and fired one round from each. The noise was deafening, and Luigi held his hands over his ears in pain. Sung calmly topped off the magazines and put the weapons into his shoulder holster. Grabbing Luigi by his shirt collar, he walked out the back room, past the fat man, now face down in the pasta. Out in the garage, the mechanics were busy at work, pretending they had heard nothing. As far as Sung was concerned, he had done the man and the organization a favor. There was no room in this world for slobs. Luigi stopped at a nearby apartment building and ran inside. Sung looked down the street at the piles of garbage strewn along the side of the road. Disgusting. These people are like animals, he thought. Luigi came outside carrying a bag. He threw it into the back seat and got in behind the wheel. They drove into downtown Naples and down to the docks. The ferry left every night for Catania, and although it took a lot longer than a flight, there was no airport security to pass through in order to board the ferry. There were still a few hours before the ferry would depart, but Sung had no desire to see Naples. He made his way to his cabin, locked the door, and lay down on the lumpy mattress. 
Sung was immediately asleep and wouldn't wake up until they reached the port of Catania, Sicily. Chapter 42. Oberammergau, Bavaria, Germany. Heinrich Müller had made up his mind. Ever since he read his father's note, he knew he had to find the place on Mount Etna, the site of the massacre. Heinrich had no idea what he was supposed to do when he found it, or even where it was exactly. All he knew was that he could think of nothing else. He was drawn to the mountain. He had to take the badge back to Edna, and Heinrich felt a horrible feeling that if he didn't, something terrible would happen. Heinrich knew it was ridiculous, these feelings. Academically, he realized he was hoping to learn more about his father by following in his footsteps. But that wasn't it. It was an actual need, a force that was compelling him to make the trip. Heinrich had responsibilities, his home, his family, his shop, and his customers. He couldn't just up and leave with no idea how long he would be gone, but he had to. His wife was unhappy he was going to leave, but understood he needed to find the answers or it would haunt him. He would never be able to let it go. She decided it was better for them all to suffer now than to watch her husband suffer for years. Heinrich made a list of things he needed to do before he would be able to leave. He had a carving on order that was almost finished, one depicting a German paratrooper sent as part of a United Nations peacekeeping force to Bosnia. The man was retiring and his wife had commissioned the piece. It was almost complete and Heinrich worked to add the finishing touches. He arranged to have his assistant run the shop and went through a list of bills that needed to be paid with his secretary. Heinrich went online to search for a flight to Catania. He found one at a decent price leaving on Saturday and he purchased the ticket. He went to another site and reserved a rental car for a week. He would extend the rental if necessary, but hopefully he would find what he was looking for in a week's time. I'm going to have to sell a few extra pieces to pay for this trip, he said to the computer monitor before he clicked on the button to complete his purchase. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Flaming Grenade. Uh, again, if you want to catch up, read along, or jump ahead, you can purchase the book on Amazon. And uh, please subscribe, share with your friends, uh, spread it around if you're enjoying the story. And I will catch you next time for the next episode of The Flaming Grenade.